You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Glad to have you. Hey, let's open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. This wonderful, uh, amazing book that we're getting the privilege to go through together. I uh, read an article about something that happened to this poor lady earlier in the year. Her name is Beverly Ellis Hebbard, and she was getting on a flight from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Jacksonville, Florida. And she actually has a home on the beach around Jacksonville, Florida, so she makes this flight all the time, several times a year. This day ended up being a little bit different. She was in a hurry. She's running late, probably some traffic or anything. And then y'all know how it is. She had to go to the bathroom. The flight's, flight's already boarding, but she's got to run into the restroom. She runs out. Everyone else is boarded. She's got to hurry, get on the flight. But then, you know, the little baggage size, does your bag fit? And it's got to fit in the thing before they'll let you take it on the plane. She had to do that. She had to fit it in the thing. And probably she's cramming it down in there. She cuts her arm on the little baggage size thing, you know, no, so now she's late, everyone's on the plane, there's blood, oh, okay, so they just hurry her on, steward, hurry, let's get you on, we got a first aid kit on the plane, they get on the plane, get the first aid kit, they're bandaging her wound, you know, and hey, she's fine, she, she made it, everything's gonna be okay, stewardess trying to make her feel better, and, and says what she thinks is a joke, and just says, hey, this, you know what, this will all be worth it when we finally land in Jamaica, <laughs> except it wasn't a joke. So Beverly says, I laughed. I said, I would love to be going there. The stewardess said, look at me. This plane is going to Jamaica. And I knew by the look on her face, she wasn't joking. That's how Beverly got on a plane to the wrong destination that day. And y'all, I think that is a perfect picture of many, many people in our culture. I think most people are trying to get to one destination, happiness. Problem is, we keep getting on the wrong plane. In fact, if I had to pick one plane that we try to get on that we we all think is going to make us happy, you know when you make your little online profile for like Facebook or any social media or anything, and there's that one little box that says relationship status. I think most people feel like if I could just have the right thing in that box, then I could be happy. If I could change it from single to married, or if I could get rid of who I married and change it back to single, or if I could just have the right person in there, then surely I'll be happy. Same thing was going on in the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, they would meet like this, and there'd be somebody in some seat over here just, just saying, if I can just get rid of this heathen, unbelieving spouse I got, then I'll be happy. Right down the aisle, there's somebody else saying, man, if I could, I could just get married one day. If I could just meet the right person, then I'll be, I'll be happy. That's what this chapter is all about. But in this chapter, Paul's going to look at all of them and say, you're getting on the wrong plane. It's not going to do for you what you think it's going to do for you. None of it will make you happy. None of it will make you content. What he's going to tell them instead, and this is our big idea for our passage today. Happiness is glorifying your Savior, not changing your status. Happiness is glorifying your Savior, not changing your status. And y'all, we've got a big task today. Paul, we said this before, Paul loves long arguments. This is a long chapter. And he's going to address 
every scenario you can imagine about our relationship status. He's going to address people who are married that don't want to be married. He's going to address people who are married and want to stay married. He's going to address single people who want to get married. He's going to address divorced, widowed people. Some of them want to marry again. Some of them think it's not best to marry again. He's going to address people married to unbelievers. And some of those, that unbeliever wants to stay married. Some of them, the unbeliever doesn't want to stay married. So y'all, there's no way. There's no way we can get through every scenario here, and I'm, I'm uh, aware that we got kids in here too. And so what we're going to do instead, instead of reading the whole passage and breaking down every possible scenario, I'm going to begin by reading the part that I think, where I think Paul summarizes his instructions. And then we'll work through our three steps. Remember our three steps. First, we're going to examine the local problem, and that is specific to them. Y'all, and there are lots of specifics we're going to have to work through. Then the second step is Paul always goes to some universal theology. And those apply to all people, all times, and all places. Those are always true. And then the third step is connect those dots into application. And y'all, some of that we can just copy and paste. But some of that we have to adapt because it was specific to them. And so it won't apply to us in the same way. So we're going to work through that process. And as we do, we're going to hit some verses along the way. But hey, if you have any questions about any of this, I'd love to talk to you after the service during the week, uh, anything like that. But let's begin. We're going to start in verse 17. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he, was fr- who, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there let him remain with God. So let's start with step one, the local problem. What's going on there in Corinth that Paul is writing to? He says in verse 1, now concerning the things you wrote. So everything after this is kind of his list of questions he's gotten over time. Okay, somebody asked about this. Somebody asked about this. Somebody asked, oh, John, want to know about this. So I'm going to address it all right here. And here we sit, getting in on the middle of a conversation, only hearing one side of the conversation. And we have to remember that. Because, y'all, if we come to these and we think, well, Paul is writing the letter to me today, we're going to get in all kinds of trouble. He wasn't writing to me. He was writing to them in specific situations. And so I would advise we have to be slow to conclude that he is banning something for all times and all people or that he is recommending something for all times and all people. He's going to put, the way he puts things, y'all, it's going to be weird. It's going to sound weird to us sometimes. It may sound offensive to us at times. So I'd ask us to keep in mind, one of Paul's strategies here is he is using their language. He does this over and over again. They're saying, I want to be the most spiritual. He's like, okay, let's talk about who's spiritual. They're saying, I want power. So, okay, let's talk about power, the cross. That's the power of God. That's what he's going to do here again and again. He's going to reach them with their language to redirect them back to the cross. And so he's not talking like us. 
Y'all, he's not even talking like a devout Jew, which is what Paul is. He is talking like a Corinthian. And so we're going to experience some of that language, and we're going to have to translate it a little bit. A little bit of the context. And so what seems to be a big deal, what seems to be a, a big question in the Corinthian church is, after I become a Christian, what do I do with my relationship status? Okay? Remember, all of them, all of them were converted from paganism. From a pagan Greek culture, nobody grew up in the church or anything like that. There's many of them whose spouses were not happy about it. So there's a lot of people in this church, apparently, who, who became a believer, and their home life got way more complicated and way more difficult. And it seems that uh, their spouses anti- antagonized them, probably mocked them a little bit. He gives us another piece of the context. Verse 26, he says, in light of this present distress, Y'all, we don't really know what this present distress is that he's talking about. They knew, but we don't. My best guess is uh, we know that the dial is getting ready to turn up on the persecution. We know even in uh, a little bit here, the the culture is reacting poorly against uh, people who have put their faith in Christ. So my best guess is he's sensing and they're experiencing some of the the dial being turned up in the persecution. And he he thinks it's only going to get worse. Another big part of the context is their worldview. Everyone in that church, their whole life had been raised on this worldview of of what we've called Gnostic dualism. So dualism means there's one and the other. There's the good and the bad. And so they said spiritual good, physical bad. Spiritual eternal, physical temporary. And in this worldview, there was always kind of this hierarchy. And we, we can see this. What? You always wanted to move up the ladder. You always wanted to advance, okay? It's kind of like the original MLM, okay? The goal is move up the pyramid, move up the ladder, and you would have, you know, advisors, spiritual advisors that that were a little ahead of you that could show you how to get there. That that was the whole uh, philosophy. And, you know, this worldview, it always ends up in one uh, one of two extremes. One is licentiousness that says, hey, the body doesn't matter, so do whatever you want. It's, no, it's not important. Have at it. Have a good time. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's that side. Or often it would end up in asceticism, which said you, you got to free yourself from this body that's just keeping you back. And the way to do that is to starve it. You ignore your physical urges and your appetites, and you just live on this spiritual plane. And eventually, if you're spiritual enough, you won't have any physical appetites at all. And these are both ways to kind of move up the spiritual ladder. And we saw last week, we saw the licentiousness come out. People were saying, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to with your body. It's like, when you're hungry, you eat. Here, we're going to see this asceticism come out. But the important thing for now for us to remember is, y'all, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Christian worldview is that you were created body and soul. That's who you are. You're not one or the other. And the resurrection shows us that God will redeem it all and all of it will be a part of his kingdom. He created it all as good, spiritual and physical, and he will redeem it all one day. We can't separate ourselves like that. That's the, that's the Christian worldview. So what many were doing, many were kind of applying this Gnostic dualism to their relationships and they're, they're seeking and searching to become happy. And so they, some would say, in this culture, many would say the key to happiness is being married. And that was part of the culture, Victor. So this is the part that's very different from us. In that culture, y'all, 
there was no sense, there was no idea that you as an individual could be prestigious, could be successful, could be important. That wasn't something for individuals. That was something for families. You had to be part of a prominent family or you had to, to make your family prominent, okay? That, that's how they viewed it. And so they say, absolutely, you better be married if you're going to be somebody. And you know what? This is one of those areas that the Jews and the Greeks would agree. Many Jews of the day actually thought that unmarried men and childless women wouldn't go to heaven. That's what they were teaching. And so some of that apparently had made its way into the church. And people tell you, if you want to advance, you want to be really spiritual, you've got to be married. I better board the marriage plane if I'm going to be happy. That's what many were saying. There are some who wanted to be remain married but live physically separated. These were the ascetics. And they were saying, you know, our physical appetites are bad. We get closer to God by ignoring our physical bodies. And eventually, again, if we're spiritual enough, we, we won't have any desires at all. And so they're, they're boarding the celibacy plane to happiness. There are some who are saying better to get divorced. Man, that unbelieving spouse is like a weight tied to your ankles. You need to get rid of him. I mean, surely I can follow God better if I get this spiritual deadbeat out of my life. I mean, so surely God wants me to divorce so I can follow him better. And so we either need to board the singleness plane or the remarriage plane to get to happiness. But then there's widows in the church. What about widows? No, back then, so Caesar Augustus actually fined widows if they failed to remarry within two years. How about that? Start putting a clock on it. Start paying taxes. And so there's some taking that cultural belief into the church saying, hey, we need to get these widows remarried if they're going to be happy. So that, that's the local condition and the context that Paul is writing into. Some ways similar to ours, some ways very different. So let's move to step two, the theology. What, what, what does Paul point to to direct them? He essentially says to all of them, whatever situation, whatever you're pointing to, he says to all of them, you're getting on the wrong plane. None of it will work. And the first thing he does is what he always does in just about every situation we're going to encounter, he points them to the resurrection. Verse 29. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And y'all, this is one of those passages where he's not talking like we would talk. It, it sounds kind of weird. But y'all, he's essentially saying, no matter your relationship status, we're all in the same boat. We're, we all have the same destination. So, all of the things that you're thinking are such a big deal, they're actually not that big a deal. In light of the resurrection. In light of the resurrection, he says in verse 29, time is short. So, hey, as a general rule, guys, it is a bad idea to invest all of your emotional eggs into something that is short and temporary. We all know that. Well, that's not going to make us happy. He's saying that's us. In light of the resurrection. Verse 31, he says, the present form of this world, this is fascinating to me, so not just this world, the present form of this world. He doesn't say, will one day pass away. He says it is 
passing away. It has already started. It is already happening right now, ever since the resurrection. That's where it began. Because of the resurrection, we know the Bible says that Jesus was just the first fruits. There's a lot more coming. So because of that, we know our physical bodies will be resurrected and redeemed. We know the physical creation will be a part of God's kingdom. But we also know this spiritually, relationally. Not, so it's physical and spiritual. You see what he's doing? Because he's talked about this, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are temples of the Holy Spirit right now. Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, even now we have a foretaste of the contentment, of the love, of the relationship that we will one day experience in full when we are with Jesus. That has already started. We already have a foretaste of it. And on the flip side, because of our trials, because of our struggles, y'all, we already have a foretaste of what will happen to the present form of this world. Y'all, we already know this world is passing away. We, ex we experience it. We feel it every day of our lives. So, those who are married, those who are unmarried, share the same hope. The same hope. So don't go chasing or elevating one over the other is what he's saying. The next thing he does is something he always does. He points them to the Old Testament. He does this over and over again. He takes them back to the beginning, to the Old Testament. I think it's his way of saying, get out of your culture. Get out of just what you were taught when you grew up. Let's go way back to the beginning. And he brings up circumcision. He says, listen, it, if, you were if you were circumcised before you came a, became a Christian, don't try to undo it. How would that work exactly? I, well, that seems like a weird thing to say. I, I don't know how one would go about that. I think he's making a larger point here. He's pointing us back to the whole uh, point, the whole purpose of circumcision. So the purpose of circumcision was a covenant sign. That's why God gave it to them. That's why it was intended. It's a way to say to yourself, to other people, I belong to God. I am his. I am bound to him and he is bound to me. One thing that's interesting about circumcision, it was not unusual in the ancient Near East. Lots of other cultures practiced it. But there were two things. There were two things that were unusual about how the Israelites did. They did it a little different than everyone else. The first thing that was unusual was every other culture, it was only the priests. It was only the priests who decided, I'm going to dedicate my life to God. I'm going to live in his service. So it was a select few who were dedicating their lives to God. But God told Israel, everybody, everybody. Why? Because I want everyone dedicated to me. I want everyone serving me. I want everyone bound to me and married to me. A kingdom of priests is what he called his people. The whole kingdom, everybody. Second thing that was unusual is only the Israelites did it for babies. Everyone else did it. It was when you're older, when you decided, I'm going to be a priest, I'm going to dedicate my life to God. And so you went through this ritual based on your decision and to show your commitment. Not Israel. God said, no, babies. What's the picture there? You didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't earn it. I'm going to earn it for you. That's the picture. 
And what does Paul say about the physical act here in verse 19? He says, it's not the physical act that matters. It's keeping the commandments of God. And y'all, this is all over the Bible. This is not one of those things that, you know, it's different than the Old Testament, but then Jesus shows up in the New Testament and it's like, surprise, it's different. No, no, no. Deuteronomy, all the way back at the beginning, you can find this. It's in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Acts, Romans, Philippians, and Colossians. God says, I want circumcision of the heart. That's what I'm after. Circumcision of the heart. It's like saying, don't just wear the wedding ring. I want you to be faithful to me. That's what, that's what God was after all along. So Paul, as he brings this up, he's saying, listen, just some ritual, like just some relationship status, won't earn you contentment. It won't make you content. It's being married to me, being bound to God in truth, in your heart. That's what you are meant for. Happiness is being married to me, is what God is saying. And then Paul does something else he always does. He reminds them of the cross. He's always taking them back to the cross. So in verse 23, he repeats a phrase that we heard last week in chapter 6. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. He's talking about the cross. And see, the cross reminds us, y'all, that, that you aren't free, independent, and autonomous. And that's the best news you could ever hear. 1 Peter 2, 24 puts it this way. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He's saying there, he's saying in this verse, Jesus, he was free, independent, and autonomous, but he gave that up for you to pay the price for your sins. And that, his death, his submission to that, it changed you. He's saying here, belonging to Jesus, that's freedom. Belonging to Jesus, that's healing. See, before he bought you, you were enslaved to sin. He set you free. By belonging to Jesus, he says, that is the only way that now you can live to righteousness. That's to say, you can live the way God always intended you to live. That's the only way. So what's, what's Paul saying in all this? Because it seems like an odd trio of things to, to bring up. The resurrection, circumcision, and then the cross. What he's saying here is that the most important relationship in your life is not any relationship to any human. He's saying the most important relationship to your life, the plane you need to get on, is your relationship with your creator. Your, the resurrection shows you that your hope is in God, not in man. The circumc circumcision shows you that you are married to God. And the cross shows you that you belong to God. And that's freedom, and that's healing. So finding happiness in any human relationship is getting on the wrong plane. So let's see how he applies it. He takes these three theological principles. He's talked about the situation, all the questions that he gets getting, all the things that are going on. Let's see how he connects the dots and applies them. Y'all, Paul's advice here is absolutely stunning. And it is absolutely singular. It does not fit uh, any of the, what, how the rest of the cultures would have answered this. It is completely unique. He issues almost no restrictions. He issues almost no commands. 
In fact, he says to almost every relationship status, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, cool. Do that. That's no big deal. He says to remain as you are six times. Yeah, where you are is fine. You can glorify God that way. He says, be content and place your hope in God. He's essentially saying, stop going to the airport. Don't get on any plane. Stay where you are. It's not about about finding some magical land of happiness, some couple changes of circumstances that will one day do it for you. He says both marriage and singleness have their advantages. They have their difficulties, but neither is ultimate. He gives us a hint of what is ultimate in verse 35. He's hinting at what our ultimate calling is. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what Paul's after. That's what God's after. But later on, we got to fast forward all the way to chapter 10. Paul's going to say explicitly, I think, the principle that he wants us to abide by. And again, Paul likes long arguments. We got to get over it. He didn't uh, write this on what was formerly known as Twitter. I forget what it's called now. Chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. He's in, then he's talking about eating or drinking. He's like, yeah, fine, eat or drink, whatever. Here he's talking about relationships. He's, yeah, either way, single, married, do it all to the glory of God. Paul is saying your job is glorifying the Savior, not changing your status. That is what God has put you on the earth to do, is to glorify your Savior, not change your status. Whether you're single or married, whatever it is, or engaged, you are put on this earth to glorify God. You know what we all are? We are all just a bunch of dummies. You know, you go in the store. I haven't gone to a clothing store in a while. Thank goodness. Uh, go in a clothing store, and there's all these, I guess the technical term is mannequins. Uh, growing up, we called them dummies. These mannequins there, and, and their whole job is to display the glory of that store or the glory of that designer. They, they want you, because those are there, you, they want you to be wowed by how beautiful those clothes are. The point of the dummy is not to draw attention to itself, right? The point of the dummy is to draw attention to the glory of the designer. And that is what we all are. We are dummies, mannequins, meant to put on display the glory of our God. And y'all, there is no Wrong relationship status for glorifying God. And, I would add, a difficult situation can point to his glory every bit as much, maybe even more, than an easy situation. So that's what Paul's pointing at. He's going to point out two ways. Okay, if that's our job, glorifying God, he's pointing out two ways we do it in all of our relationships. The first is this. We have covenant relationships, not consumer relationships. We have covenant relationships with each other, not consumer relationships with each other. This is hard for us because almost every relationship we have out there is a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship is all about you meeting my needs at the least possible cost to myself. 
In a consumer relationship, we can drop each other anytime. Anytime we find a bigger, better deal, uh, anytime we find something more convenient, something that better meets my needs, then yeah, let's, let's make a change. But men and women, the resurrection, circumcision, the cross, all point to covenant relationships. I bind my whole self to another person, to their whole self, a great sacrifice to myself. This is what Paul has in mind when he says what he says in verse 4, verse 4 and 5. He says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over her own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The principle he's talking about here is the principle of mutual submission. Mutual submission is a covenant principle. Now, y'all, I know in our culture, I know everybody just got a little squirmy when I read that. Because in our culture, authority and submission have become four-letter words. But y'all, they're not. They're biblical. In fact, I would say so much of our culture's dysfunction, anxiety, loneliness is, has to do with us being desperate for relationships, but demanding that we remain totally autonomous and independent. Can't be done. Now, I know there's a caveat here because many, many in the church over history, they have talked about authority, but what they really mean is abuse. Y'all, abuse is one-way authority, one-way submission. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's talking about here is mutual authority and submission, which, by the way, was completely revolutionary in its day. Y'all, when he said, you know, the wife does not have authority over her own body, everybody in the Greek and the Jewish culture would have been like, yeah. But then when he said, but likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, y'all, that's the record scratch, spit out your water moment. Without mutual authority and submission, there are no covenant relationships, only consumer relationships. There is no, I'm binding myself to another person, a great sacrifice to myself. There, there's only, well, what have you done for me lately? You know where we see this? You know where we see this lived out? Not in the culture, not in what other people say. In God himself. We see it in God himself. At the cross, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. Bobby reminded of us in the garden, God, not my will, but your be done. And then he submitted himself to death for you. So your salvation doesn't happen without authority and submission. You know what? You know what John 1 says? Because of what Jesus did, because his he submitted to the will of the Father because he submitted to death. John 1, 12 and 13 says, because of that, you have a right to be called a child of God. You have that right. That word, right, it's the same word as authority here in 1 Corinthians. Same word. So without authority, you don't get to be a child of God. See, this is the whole point. This is the whole point about why God created marriage. He created it to point us to himself. Marriage is created as a unity that demonstrates the Trinity. That's what marriage is at its most foundational level. It is a unity that demonstrates the Trinity. 
And so it's not a consumer relationship. It's a covenant relationship modeled after God himself. And we see this coming out in the request. A consumer relationship, one of the great things about a consumer relationship is I can like separate the parts of myself. And so I have a consumer relationship with Chicken Express down the road. Okay? I go to it to satisfy my hunger for chicken. It has nothing to do with the rest of my life. I can leave the rest of my life, do whatever I want to with it out there somewhere else. Just me and Chicken Express, we're in it for chicken. I'm in it for chicken. They're in it for money. That's it. You know, last week we, we saw these, he reminded them, hey, what we do with our bodies, we do with ourselves. We are whole persons. We covenant, we bind ourselves to whole persons. That's a covenant relationship. So we can't just separate the parts of ourselves. So Paul here, some of them were wanting to separate their spiritual parts from their physical parts of the relationship. And Paul says, no, you're whole persons. And so he allows for some temporary separation, much like fasting. Hey, temporarily, I'm not going to eat to focus on my prayers to remind me of my need for God, but no one says, I'm just never going to eat. That would be a bad plan. So he's reminding them, you have a covenant relationship with one another, body and soul, your whole self. And that's why he says this in verse 10. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, let me say this. Y'all. The Bible's got a lot of teachings about marriage and divorce. When he says, not I, but the Lord, or we think he's probably referencing Jesus' teaching. So they probably had a record of Jesus' teaching on the subject. Y'all, I want you to know that divorce is not some unforgivable sin like many in the church have treated it. You don't have to walk around with the scarlet D the rest of your life if you've been through that. The Bible does allow for divorce in some situations, particularly unfaithfulness and abandonment, which there are many, uh, many forms of that. But what the Bible does say is that divorce is always painful and difficult because it is breaking apart something that was meant to be permanent. And apparently in Corinth, many were treating it as like this one-way ticket to get on the plane to happiness. And Paul's saying, no, no, that is not what it is. It is not a quick trip to happiness. And you know what? Anyone who's ever been divorced will tell you that. See, if marriage is a covenant, he said this last week, he pointed to creation, where two become one, then divorce is like an amputation. And you know what? I'm not saying there's never any reason for amputation, but it's always a last resort, and it's always painful, even when it's necessary. And then I'd say this, listen, if you've, if you've experienced this amputation called divorce, like I have, my parents were divorced. I experienced it in my family. Remember the hope of the resurrection. Remember what he's already talked about. This is why Paul brings the resurrection up again and again. Because if it's true, if it's true that the present form of this world is passing away, do you know what that means? That means there is hope beyond the sins done by us, and there is healing for the ones done to us. There's hope beyond all of it. None of it's final. The way we glorify God is by not treating people like consumers. 
We covenant with people just like God covenants with us. That's the first way we glorify God in any relationship we're in. The second way, we seek to bless others. This is how we put God's glory on display no matter our relationship status. We seek to bless others. Look at what he says starting in verse 12. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving spouse separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here he's talking about people married to an unbelieving spouse. Now, first thing is, I don't want you to read too much into it when he says, you can make your spouse holy. This is not salvation by proximity or by osmosis. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said you're married to an unbelieving spouse. He'd say, congratulations, because you got saved, your spouse is saved, y'all are good. That's not what he says. Again, remember, he's, he's using their language. He's talking like them. That word holy, it's the same word we use for sanctified. Same word we use for set apart. It's a word we often use for growth, for being made more Christ-like. And so all he's talking about, y'all, is salt and light. Being salt and light, that's all he's talking about. And so he's saying, when you walk in covenant relationship with God and you're glorifying him, you're putting his glory on display, you know what? Others around you begin to experience his grace. They begin to experience the goodness of God and the influence of God through you. They learn about the ways of God by watching how you live and how you speak. We see this all the time in the Bible. Saw this with Laban. Laban told Jacob, my household has been blessed because of your presence. Now, y'all, Laban was a scumbag. He was a shady character. But he's still saying because there was somebody in covenant relationship with God in our household, it was salt and light. It made it better. We see this with Potiphar. He said his household was blessed by the presence of Joseph. He says this, and then he says in verse 16, perhaps the people around you will come to a saving faith because of you. You know, I'd be willing to bet there, there are some here who that's the story of their family. Their family was not full of believers. They didn't go to church, but there was one person, maybe a grandmother, maybe a sibling, who started following the Lord. And then surely enough, over time, people saw the life change. People experienced the grace of God and they put their faith in Christ. And then the next generation came along and did the same thing. And the next generation and the next generation. The next thing you know, heaven is filled with people from that family and it started with one person. You know, I remember being a teenager reading the book, uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And uh, really, you know, teenage years are... Uh, man, very impressionable and growing. And that was kind of the first apologetics book I'd ever read. And it made a big impression on me and it really strengthened my faith. Well, did you know that Lee Strobel wrote that book to disprove Jesus to his believing wife? He was a reporter, considered himself a scientific man. Uh, he went into all these religious fantasies, mumbo jumbo. 
In fact, he said when his wife became a believer, he told her, I didn't marry no holy roller. And so he said, he said I'm, I'm going to prove my wife wrong, which God's this never going to end well for you, okay? I'm going to prove her wrong, and I'm going to do all this research into Jesus, and I'm going to find out, and I'm going to show her that this is a bunch of hooey. And through his research, he found he couldn't deny who Jesus was. He became a believer. He became converted. And the work he did became that book, The Case for Christ. So y'all, millions have read that book and had their strength faith, faith strengthened. Many have read, supposedly, and become believers, but it didn't start with Lee Strobel. It started with his wife, Leslie Strobel. Isn't that amazing? Do you remember who we said circumcision is for? Priests. Priests. What's a priest's job? To teach people about God. That's why God wanted a kingdom of priests, so we could be salt and light in our spheres of influence. And so listen, if that's you this morning, if you're married to an unbeliever, listen, I know it's hard. I know it may not be very fulfilling today, but don't lose heart. Who knows what fruit you may see in the future? Who knows how God will use you to display his glory? Because that's our job. Our job is glorifying our Savior, not changing our status. How do we do that? We do that by making covenants with people. We do that by blessing others in our sphere of influence. Yet, y'all, how many people then and now spend all of their energy, all of their effort just looking for that right person, looking for that person who can make them happy, or trying to make someone else into the right person? What if we took a different approach, men and women? What if... What if we shifted our focus from finding that magical right person to make us happy and shifted our focus to our relationship with God? Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian. I think he hit the nail on the head. He said, equally destructive as the moral obligation approach to marriage that says you must do it for social status and obligation, equally destructive is the self fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and family are primarily ways of personal happiness. You know, it's like boarding a plane to the wrong destination. I want you to know this morning, there is one right person for you, only one, and that is Jesus Christ. The way Tim Keller says it, he's dead on. He says, no matter who you marry, you're going to marry the wrong person. Everyone's the wrong person, because we're all sinful and broken. And you know what? They're going to change. And you're going to change. I'm sorry, guys. Disney lied to us all. That's not how it works. You know, a few weeks ago, we studied the woman at the well from the book of John. You remember her, the Samaritan woman at the well? The Bible presents her as just a picture of brokenness and loneliness and discontentment. She is looking for happiness, and she's constantly changing her relationship status. And Jesus calls her out. He said, you've been married five times, and you're with this other Yahoo guy, and he ain't your husband either. And because, you know, Jesus is such a great teacher. Because they're at a well, he puts it in terms of thirst. So you just keep changing relationship status, but none of them satisfy your thirst. But then he tells her, you know what? If you make me your man, you'll never thirst again. You'll be totally satisfied. Only I can satisfy your soul. And you know what that woman does? She believes, and then she becomes the best dummy that Samaria has ever seen. She runs in that town, and she says, let me tell you about this man I met. 
I've put my faith in him. He has satisfied my soul, and he can do it for all of you too. And the Bible says that many Samaritans came to believe that day because that woman put God's glory on display for all to see. And that's what God wants to do with you. Right where you are, here, today, tomorrow, without changing a single circumstance around you. So listen, if you're here this morning and you've been trying to change your relationship status or your economic status or your social status or any status under the sun to try to make yourself happy, I invite you to give that up. I invite you to give up that lost cause and come to Jesus, your Savior. You were created for a relationship with him and men and women until you have it, nothing else will satisfy you. So if you're here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus, I invite you to believe. Believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, that he died for your sins and that he rose again. Why? To have a relationship with you. So you could be bound to him and he can be bound to you. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer, but you've become distracted. What if? What if? You stopped asking what you can do, what you can change in your life to make you happy now, and instead, what if you asked a different question? What if you start asking yourself, what can I do right here today to put God's glory on display in my life? I think that'll make all the difference. Find happiness in glorifying your Savior, not in changing your status. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.